Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. This sermon was taken from the life of the church. For more messages like this, please see our website, www.venturechurch.co.za. We hope you enjoy this message. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. We saw in chapter 1 that Paul uh, started by emphasizing the one true gospel and that there is only one true gospel. Then, as we started getting into chapter 2, we saw how he starts to explain why this is the one and only and the true gospel and how it's worked out in the Galatians' own experience thus far. And then over the last two weeks, we saw him introduce the troublemakers, those who he's going to name for the first time in the passage we're going to read now, the circumcision party. So first we saw about how they had crept in as spies in disguise amongst us. Then last week we looked at how God's not impressed. He has... He doesn't show favoritism, but he does have favorites. Those who respond and press in by faith to his presence are God's favorites. But there, he shows no favoritism. Whoever you are, if you have the courage and the tenacity to press into his presence, he'll respond the same way. He doesn't have first and second class citizens in the kingdom. He's not impressed by the fact that you're on a church staff. That's favoritism. He's only impressed by faith. And he always responds consistently and overwhelmingly in response to faith. Today, we're going to look at an event that was more like an internal challenge than an external challenge which happened in the church at Antioch. And so we're going to pick up from Galatians 2 in verse 11. I'm just going to read through, uh, what is this, three verses, four verses. So Galatians 2 from verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined with his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? It's one of those passages that it's easy to read over and think, oh yeah, okay, and move on. (laughs) Because like, what the hang's going on here? Well, I want to unpack it a bit and then see one incredible lesson that Paul wants us to understand that the Lord wants to impart to us. One life-changing perspective, uh, revolutionizing 
change that the Lord wants to lead with us. So, it starts, but when Cephas... So who's Cephas? That's a weird name. Well, it, it's, it's a very clever little piece of, um, of writing. Paul is an absolute genius master uh, speaker, or seeing as he's been dead 2,000 years almost, writer, comes across in his writing. He uses Peter's Hebrew, or Aramaic in this case, name. So Cephas means the same as Petros. It means rock. So he's deliberately using Peter's Jewish stroke Hebrew name to address him. So it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, so one of, my, one of the fun parts for me in terms of preparing this was working out the history. How did this all work out? How did it all fit in? Because while we have the story of Paul and Barnabas going up to Jerusalem to present to the church there the problem they've been having, we heard some of that last week and we read about it in verse 2, we don't read about this apostolic visit that Peter made to Antioch. So if I can, if I can lead you through what happens and how it fits in and what's missing in the book of Acts. So, uh, Paul and Barnabas get back to Antioch, their base church, after their trip through Galatia in mid-southern Turkey, modern mid-southern Turkey. They get back to the church from which they had come, Antioch, which is kind of a third of the way down the eastern end of the Mediterranean, just south of Syria in modern Lebanon. And they report back, things are wonderful, there's there's enormous excitement and then uh, word starts filtering through, hey, there's problems in these churches that you visited. There's a whole bunch of people who crept in, who came in, and they've been submerting, uh, submerting, subverting your message, your presentation of the gospel. They're saying, actually, you need to come to Jesus through Moses, through obeying the law and all the external stuff, most significantly for most Gentiles, circumcision. And it eventually gets back to Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch and there is such, a, such an explosion of furore that they all decide, no, let's go and find out what everyone else in the church thinks about this thing. We've got a position, let's make sure that we're all on the same page. So... A delegation goes to Jerusalem. Not because it's the head church, but just because there are other well-respected people there. So they go up. There is this meeting. Acts, middle of Acts 15, we read about it. And this meeting happens. And there is a unanimous decision. No, Gentiles do not need to become Jews first. And just to clarify, you and me, we Gentiles... I don't know anybody here who has a Jewish background, though there may be one or two of us. Oh, okay, I didn't know that, Anne. That's awesome. Even for most Jews amongst us, they're non-practicing Jews. So it's almost as if it's the same thing. There's just this incredible uh, legacy, heritage that there is there. Whether you are or whether you're not, you come to Jesus one way and one way only by the same faith that we were talking about last week 
And the church in Jerusalem ratifies that. And the first signatory on that letter is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas and the group that went with him is delighted. They take the letter, they go back to Antioch. My guess is they started making copies of the letter and every time somebody visited them in Antioch from Galatia, they gave them a copy of this letter. They explained what had happened and said, please take this back and read this letter in the church. Very similar to what we understand and what we see of how Paul's letters were sent to the church and read publicly there. Shortly after Paul and Barnabas had got back, Peter pays an apostolic visit to the church in Antioch. This is the bit that isn't recorded in Acts. So Acts, which is a history book, covers quite a lot of years. All the, like 40 to 50 years, because we're not quite sure when, uh, when Acts uh, ends historically, because Nobody except James really has died yet. But unfortunately, we understand eminently, Paul and Peter were soon to die in the, 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 the years following the closing of the book of Acts. So it doesn't record every last detail. And here's a detail that it doesn't, didn't recall. Probably because it was such a common occurrence that there was apostolic ministry, apostolic trips, into various local churches. And Peter comes to strengthen the church in Antioch and ends up getting caught up, embroiled, if you will, in the problem that he's come to try and help. So, one thing to remember, even those who have the apostolic ministry, those who are gifted as apostles, can blow it. And it's into that context because we're all human. (laughs) Into that context, we start reading Galatians 2.11. So that's that's the the history. And it happens before Paul Paul separates from Barnabas, and Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus, and, um, and Paul takes... Who did he take? Silas. Where's Silas today? Missing him today. But Paul takes Silas and they go back to Galatia. In that little interim period, not recorded in Acts, but recorded here in Galatians for us, we have this incredible confrontation of Cephas, Peter, by Paul. Now, I believe that this passage has been given a bad rap in the church over the centuries. Because the picture that we are often given when we read this is, yo, how did Paul do that? No, Paul really sinned when he confronted Peter in this. It was so ugly of him to do anything like that. I believe that is utterly and completely false. This is good confrontation. It's necessary. It's done well and it is essential for the gospel. If this confrontation had not happened, there would, the gospel would have been corrupted very, very early on. Even as we're reading, probably here around, as a thumbsuck somewhere in the 30s, 
No, probably a little bit later. Somewhere in the late 30s, early 40s of the first century, the gospel would have got corrupted. And Paul would not have been able to write in Galatians 1, there is one true gospel. He's recounting the history to the Galatians so that he can, and this story is proving that the one true gospel survives every kind of opposition. So, what does he do? He opposes Peter to his face. There's that phrase again that I mentioned last time, to his face. Not in a cupboard. Not somewhere, in this case, not somewhere privately. We'll get to why in a a moment. So he lays down the facts. Hey, Peter, you came to encourage us. That was awesome. When you came with your team, we were all sharing fellowship together. We were all having meals together. Whoever we were, Jew, Gentile, whatever our background, all of us who'd come to know Jesus, we were eating together. But then there was a group who came from your home church who, caught, who suddenly, when they appeared, things changed. And I just want to pick up on a couple of small things that he says. Before certain men came from James, that, the way that's phrased makes it sound like they were authorised or sent by James. But that can't be right, because James was the first signatory on the letter that said, no, these things are not required of the Gentiles. So I think it's probably better to understand that phrase as, they came from the church that James led. So that's the first thing I want to pick up on. So there were certain men that came from the Jerusalem church. When they came, Peter slipped into his old uh, way and into his old habits. What do I mean by that? I mean he slipped into his habit of being the apostle to the Jews. Is it sinking in? He slipped into his old habit of being, not his old habit of sinning, into his old habit of being the apostle to the Jews. So that's what God had called him to be. I don't think this was anything malicious. It's all, oh, I've distanced myself. He slipped into being, fulfilling his ministry, but at the cost of where he was at and what a God had called him to do there. Paul, uh, Paul says here, because he feared those from the circumcision party, so he names this, this group, they've been called various things in various books over the years, but this is a good title, the circumcision party, the party who were insisting that everybody, whatever their background, got circumcised if they believed in Jesus, because they had to be Jewish first before they could receive the Jewish Messiah. In contrast, in contradiction to what the letter from Jerusalem had stated that everyone was in agreement with, which was, no, there's nothing that needs to be observed of the law, but only faith in Jesus. Then we get into the meat of where we find this really difficult. Paul calls this hypocrisy. Verse 13. And he says the hypocrisy was so... He even repeats it. 
He says the hypocrisy was so bad that it even got Barnabas caught up in it. This is where we really start battling because he is, he's making these absolute, radical, condemning statements. Well, that's what it looks like on the surface. However, the fruit of this confrontation was not condemnation. It was clarity, healing, and wholeness. So when we feel awkward when the scripture tells us that Peter condemned Paul and he says, I did it publicly, I posed him to his face. When other people were around, oh, couldn't you have chosen a better moment, Paul? No! Why he gets into this. I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, and live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like... But he didn't say anything like that. His actions were speaking louder than his words. Peter had slipped back into being the apostle to the Jews, but he had forgotten where he was. He was in Antioch with the Gentiles, enforcing and theoretically encouraging the obedience to the letter from Jerusalem. So Paul had to confront him because there is only one true gospel. And that is the same gospel for Jews and Gentiles. That's the point of what, he's, of what uh, Paul's saying here. There is one gospel. And whoever you are and whatever your background, whatever the privilege you've had, whether you've grown up in a Christian home, whether you were Jewish or not, and knew the scriptures before, there is only one way to Jesus. And it's the same for us all, whoever you are. So what Paul did, and gets a bad rap for, is he had the courage to speak the truth because he saw the consequences of not speaking the truth. So in the passage, we do have a strong confrontation. It feels rather awkward because it contains such condemning language, but the fruit of the confrontation is freedom and not condemnation. So, the story, four verses, is a pricey of what probably happened over a few days. So Paul also didn't rush into this. It was, he saw things changing, it looked a bit strange, he wanted to give it some time, he probably had a, a, had a bit of a chat with uh, Peter before it, the whole situation had clarified in his own mind, But only when Peter was not responding to, hey, this doesn't feel right, uh, did he feel that he was compelled to address it publicly. Why? Because Peter was demonstrating there was a difference between Jews and Gentiles publicly by separating himself. So it was a public demonstration I would like to briefly just spend some time applying this idea of good confrontation. Because that, that 
those two words together don't seem to fit. Good confrontation. Surely all confrontation is bad. Well, that can't be true because God confronts us with the gospel. That's where it starts. The gospel confronts who we are at the very core of our being. The gospel is not an easy pill to swallow. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's king of glory. Convicting us of sin. We use that phrase, but we don't like what it means when we push it to its extreme. It means we stand condemned by our sin, by our disobedience to the way of a holy God, but with the promise of God's redemption in Jesus, standing right next to it. The gospel confronts us with good. I mean, gospel, the word gospel means good news. Condemnation, not good news. We know that. Confrontation and conviction is not automatically equal to condemnation. Many of us act or believe like it is, but it is not. The gospel confronts us radically with the truth of the love of God and his hatred for sin and what he's done about it for us. God starts the process by convicting or confronting us with the gospel. I want to take you on a little bit of a journey through a handful of other scriptures to show that this is not an isolated incident, but it's, it's something that actually, is actually there all over the scripture and that we are commanded to embrace. And then I want to end by talking about some practical ways in which we can do confrontation well because few of us are equipped naturally to do it well. So my first scripture is Revelation 3.19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The Lord's speaking to his church. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Hebrews also brings this out. I think it's actually quoting the same Old Testament uh, scripture. God loves us enough to not leave us where we're at. The first challenge is, do we love ourselves and those around us enough to not stay where we're at and to not allow those we love the most to stay where they're at? If you wake up every morning and you, you look at your, your partner or you see your friend in the parking lot and you see they've got a growth forming on their face and you say nothing. Is that love? It's awkward to say, mm, have you, did you look at the mirror this morning? It may be awkward, but that is good confrontation when you have the courage to say, something is wrong. So this Attitude comes from the heart of God. As many as I love, the Lord says, I rebuke and discipline. Rebuke is another word that we see as wholly negative. When God does these things for us, it's to deal with sin and bring life out of us. 
When Jesus saves us, he deals with our past and he gives us a new destiny. It's part of the challenge of when the gospel is presented as solely salvation from sin and not lordship. We lack purpose without the lordship of God. And more deeply, we lack this understanding of God wanting to change us for his best and our best. And I deliberately say it that way around because it is for him first, because he is worthy. But actually, it is the best for us too. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to aspire to the attitude of Jesus, who was prepared to overcome no small amount of public humiliation to do what was right, to do what was right and best not for him, but for all of us, for all of humanity. The price that he paid, the humiliation that he experienced was not because of his own sin, but because of yours and mine. So we need to be able to embrace with that same attitude of Jesus, rebuke when it comes and have the courage to do it to others who we love enough to not stay where they're at. Luke 17.3 Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So be on your guard. Don't necessarily be somebody who's looking for problems under every rock, but don't overlook major problems. Don't overlook that tumour hanging off your friend's face. Have the courage to say, you need to get that sorted out. You need to sort that out. It is a command to all believers. This is one of those things that, that we don't talk about a lot. Jesus' command is to love one another. Here it is also to confront lovingly redemptively, graciously, and rebuke sin. If you, if you listen carefully to our passage, Paul was addressing Peter's behaviour and saying your behaviour is condemned, not you are condemned. <laughs> we battle with making that distinction. But it's commanded of all believers. And then 1 Timothy 5 20 says, publicly rebuke those who sin, so that the rest will be afraid. And just a little bit of context, because that's a little bit hectic. Peter, oh Peter, Timothy and Titus. Timothy, Timothy, Titus. If you sang your Bible books in uh, uh, kids' ministry, those three books. There's, there's two interesting things. They're generally called the pastoral epistles. Along with the letters of Philemon, they are three letters written to individuals. Just let that sink in again. They were primarily written to individuals. All Paul's other letters, Romans all the way through, 
were written to churches. So who was Timothy? So what was the, why did Paul write that letter? Well, Timothy was in Ephesus at this time, says so in the letter, and he was raising up leaders and dealing with similar situation to in Galatians, false teachers who had come in and were trying to lead both the people and the leadership astray. So he's talking about when things get really out of hand, and we're going to see this in a second, then leadership needs to get involved. So not just anybody has to publicly rebuke. Because our, when we confront, we do so in love for redemption. The values of Venture Church, relational, real, redemptive. This is a key outworking of that value that I'm talking about this morning. Redemption happens. We are redeemed from something into something. It doesn't happen if there's no problem. And the only reason there's no problem is if we've already been redeemed. So this is a key outworking of a core value of Venture Church. We have been redeemed. Okay. So what is God's blueprint? Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault to his face. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, put him out. And there's a beautiful irony there because, of course, Matthew was a tax collector. That is the process. That is the blueprint. We don't start with public rebuke. We start with personal, private rebuke. And we do so in humility, knowing that we ourselves can easily fall in the same thing. But we do do it. Because the love of God constrains us. So there's that process. Privately first, then take along a witness. It's so easy to give up. Well, I've, Lord, I've done what you said. They didn't listen. The courage comes even more the second time when you take your friend with you and you say I, I, you know I talked to you about this and you just you wouldn't listen now I've brought so and so with me because I want you to know this is really really serious and if they're serious about Jesus at that point and they don't agree with you that's when they come to the elders with you but it's always even then however uncomfortable that is it's still redemptive That is the point of good confrontation. Redeeming love. So what is Jesus' perspective? Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrites! First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I remember reading this um, a few years back when I was reading through Matthew 
in the Greek. And the picture is even stronger. Why have you got this tree trunk in your eye when your brother has got a little speck of dust? I mean, I just, I've got a graphical mind, so I'm thinking of this tree trunk stuck in my face. And every time I've got to move around, I'm knocking people over. That, that picture, spiritually, is true. When we live with unresolved issues in our own lives, we're like that. Every time we turn around, what do you say? Where are you gone? I've just taken you out with the tree trunk in my eye. We need to deal with ourselves before we look at trying to deal with others. This is Jesus' perspective. Imagine having a half-blind surgeon. You've got a brain tumor, and and you need it to be dealt with. You're not going to choose the surgeon with one eye, however brilliant they might have been. You need somebody who can see and see well. Proverbs 27, verse 7, a scripture that many people know well. As iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. Just want to point out one important thing in that scripture. It's not comfortable. The way iron sharpens iron is by knocking off the deeply connected embedded parts that are rough so that the blade becomes sharp and smooth but still strong. Iron sharpens iron, not a comfortable process. But it is the same process as walking in obedience and loving one another enough to confront in love. Just a couple of pointers about why we don't do this, mixed in with how we can do it better. So why don't we do this? The first reason is because we fear others getting it wrong. Not just we fear others, but we fear others getting it wrong when they're addressing us. And we also fear the pain of the process, the confrontation. It's much better if I live under the illusion that you think I'm awesome than that you know that I've got one little problem. And so we fear being abused. So much so that we often do nothing. We also fear getting it wrong for others. So because we fear others doing it for us, we're not prepared to do it for others. We fear people's anger when they're confronted, especially when they get caught out. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Sure, it takes enormous humility when you get caught doing something wrong to say, I have seriously blown it. Even in the most trivial thing, it's still so difficult to admit when we have done something wrong. And we fear it, and therefore, we don't do it. We also fear confrontation because it has so often been used as manipulation. If you, like me, meek and mild, and a bit of an introvert, actually whether you are or not, most of us have experienced this truth, that we are confront- when we're confronted, when we have been confronted, it's often because the person confronting us has an agenda. 
It's an agenda that they want to somehow steer us in this direction and they're using some imperfection that they perceive in us to do that. Let me give you an example. When you, uh, maybe somebody comes to your gate and knocks, knocks on it and says, I'm hungry, please give me some food. And you um and ah and um and ah. I've certainly been told many times when I've said, sorry, I don't have any food to give you right now. Oh, you are not a Christian. It's like, who told you I was a Christian? Oh, the, the Lord has given you a word of revelation. I need to go out and buy some food for you. That is confrontation being used to manipulate. That is confrontation being used to manipulate. That's probably a bad example, but it's certainly a very South African example. We find that too in our business places often, that uh, our managers will confront us to drive us in a certain way, and it's, it's manipulation. They don't buy it. That's not good confrontation. There is good confrontation, but not all confrontation is good. So we fear manipulation in confrontation, and so we don't confront others. We do nothing, and everyone is worse for it. We also shouldn't be going around looking for things to correct. I've certainly met a few people like this uh, in my years as as a believer, people who are looking for others to correct. Sometimes it's because they have serious challenges in their own life that they don't want to address, so it's easier to address other people's challenges. Remember? Tree trunks, dust. Love one another enough not to let sin slip. It's not good for them and it's not good for you. It undermines the truth of the one true gospel in you and in them. Undealt with sin causes more hurt to more people. But love can overcome the fear of confrontation. So practically speaking, good confrontation requires good preparation. I drew out of our passage that Paul didn't rush into confronting Peter, actually, even though it happened really quickly in three verses. It actually happened over a few days. He made sure this thing was really happening He probably talked to him uh, privately first, though we don't have that recorded. And then, when he had no other option, he had to confront him publicly. Good confrontation requires good preparation. Even in the one-on-ones, if you care enough to confront, which every single one of us should, we need to be prayed up before we talk to the person that we believe God is wanting us to confront and redeem. So we need to be clear about what the Lord wants to redeem. You're not addressing the whole character of somebody. You are addressing one specific thing. If we don't, then everything we say kind of gets lost in a big, massive putupapa. We need to know the Lord's strategy for how to approach this. And this goes not just for confronting believers. This is a general truth. 
If you've got a difficult meeting at work, make sure you've prayed about it and you've found the Lord's strategy for how to do it. Because even in that context, God wants to be redemptive through you. And it's super hard to find that redemption because of all the, and the way to that redemption because of all the emotions without having prepared well in prayer and have heard his strategy. Then we need to care enough to pastor what we preach. Or, to put it another way, to walk the road of redemption with the person that we've confronted. It's not fire and forget. It's not an ICBM launched from America dropping on St. Petersburg. It's, what do they call it? CQB. It's close quarters. It's in your face. And we need to care enough to be committed to walking out and standing with that person through to God's redemption. Sin can never be overcome without good confrontation. That's quite a thought. Sin can never be overcome without good confrontation. So what have we looked at? Paul confronted Peter publicly because he had fallen into a kind of convenience and it was starting to lead others astray. His confrontation was redemptive though. It wasn't destructive. The result of that is that the church was strengthened in the one true gospel. And he was confronting sin, not condemning Peter. When we confront well, it's about the problem, not the person. He wasn't reactive. He understood the issue and confronted the sin firmly in love to prevent more sin. And he was humble enough to be shown to be wrong and bold enough not to let sin slip. So I just want to challenge you with a couple of things and then there's a prophetic word we're going to hear before we respond to Jesus. So firstly, will you allow the Lord to confront your own sin even through others? Will you allow the Lord to confront your own sin even through others? Will you love your brother and sister enough to not let them get away with sin? Will you love them enough to not let them get away with sin? Will you choose righteousness over convenience for your own growth and for others as well? This all boils down to this one truth. These things can only be done in an accountable community which Jesus calls his church which we call Venture Church so can I ask you to stand as we hear that word I think you've I think you've all got one of these at home wedge okay in the bible there's no door stoppers no wedges um, as I was waiting on God in the week 
he took me to, and he, he gave me this wedge, and he said, gave me a wedge. So then I've got to go and do the homework and see what it is that God's wanting to share. And it was about Achan in Joshua's time. And God had said that when they do battles and do these things, all of those things were consecrated and had to come, had to, come to God. He didn't. He saw this wedge of gold and he took it in he hid it in his tent with all sorts of other things. Israel went out, they lost. They got badly beaten. And Josh and them couldn't understand why. And God said to them, because there's a sin in the camp. So we all know what happened to Achan and them eventually. But God is saying is, we sometimes have a wedge in our mind towards God or a wedge in our tongue or a wedge in our heart or a wedge in our physical what we do and when that happens your family will suffer your church like venture will find things tough because there's sin in the camp so God is saying is, is that you, you need to look what it is, this wedge that you have, and deal with it. Don't go and hide it, because God will find it. God will tell you, as we've just heard that Francis is preaching, He will confront you. He'll confront you in love, but I'll tell you what, it hurts. And that's why, if you see a wedge, deal with it. If you see a wedge in others, pray about it, prepare, and go and deal with it. So let's pray our commitment. Fred? Let's close our eyes and just do business with Jesus. Lord Jesus, every one of us stands before you as someone who has needed redemption, your redemption. We stand before you as those who have received your redemption. If there's anyone here, you have not experienced that loving grace from God that leads us to repentance, to faith in him. I'd love to pray with you now. If that's you, I could ask you just to slip up your hand so that I can. Lord, every one of us stands before you, redeemed by you. We are so grateful for what you've already done for us. Lord, for the wedges, the golden wedges that you've been revealing in hearts, I pray. I pray for the courage, the strength, the honesty, the integrity of us to deal with that to bring it out, to deal with it, whatever it may be. And Father, I also pray for each one of us 
as we lay ourselves before you and we say, Lord, we want all that you're giving. Will you help us to deal with our sin in ourselves and allow others to help us with it? Lord, we also commit ourselves, as the scripture says, to lovingly and redemptively rebuke one another from the scripture so that your purpose and will may be done in us and through us. Lord, we covenant that right now. So often me or someone like me stands up here and and prays this prayer, Lord, and it kind of washes over us. But this morning we covenant with you and we ask you to help us to change our trajectory, to embrace your blueprint, to have the same attitude that was in Jesus and to confront sin in one another, in ourselves and in one another, so that you may bring redemption and the freedom of your loving presence. We pray it in Jesus' name and we covenant it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. We would love to know how this message spoke to you. Please connect with us through our website www.venturechurch.co.za or through our various social channels.